Hey guys, so welcome to another episode of the Being Aware podcast. So March is Trisomy Awareness Month and March 18th specifically is Trisomy 18 Day. For the month of March, we wanted to highlight two of the Iwi Foundation's community partners and their resources and really talk about how they can impact families navigating a journey like ours. Today, we're talking with Sunny Mullins from Help Hope Live and Dr. Deborah Bruns of the Tries Project. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. So March is Trisomy Awareness Month. And in addition to raising awareness, we wanted to highlight some of our community partners and their programs so families are more aware about the different resources that are available. Today, we are talking with Sunny Mullins with Help Hope Live about financial resources and how an organization like Help Hope Live can be beneficial to rare disease families like ours with Edward syndrome. Hi, Sunny. Welcome to the Being Rare podcast. Hi, Sarita. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you today. Yeah, you too. You too. So um, we know that in the rare disease space, um, a lot of families experience financial hardship, financial burden. Um, So that's what we're going to touch on for today's conversation. To kick things off, though, um, I would love for you, Sunny, to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your relation to the rare disease community. Sure. So as Sarita said, my name is Sunny Mullen. I am the director of outreach with Help Hope Live. And uh, on a personal note, I definitely am part of the rare disease community. I have a younger brother that lives with a rare disease, rare genetic disorder called GRIN1. And we do a lot of work with our family with the Cure GRIN Foundation. So the fact that at Help Hope Live, we are now working with the rare and undiagnosed communities is really important to me. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy to be able to serve this community that I go home to every day just about as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. So, um, you know, when we talk about finances, you know, that's, that's a conversation that is coming up more and more. Um, and so I think that's why conversations like these are so important to really just raise awareness about different resources and services and products that are available for families uh, in the rare disease space. So um, to really, you know, kind of jump right into the conversation, can you just share with us what exactly is Help Hope Live? Sure. So Help Hope Live is a national nonprofit that assists individuals living with catastrophic conditions such as rare and undiagnosed diseases to go into their communities and fundraise for their medical expenses and related costs. And we support them wholeheartedly throughout their entire process. We set them up with a campaign page on our website, a one-on-one client services coordinator that gives them all the tools necessary to be successful. And then the funds come back to Help Hope Live, and we manage those funds so that they should not affect the individual's asset-based benefits, their Medicaid, Medicare, any of that, or become taxable income to the families, which is really important. And then they submit their bills to us, and we help pay those bills directly. So we are a safe and responsible way for these families to do their fundraising, because we also medically verify everyone that we work with. So your community and your donors 
are all just can be very comfortable donating toward Help Hope Live in your honor, knowing that the funds are going to the right reasons for an individual in honor of an individual that actually has the disease they say they have. Mm -hmm. Now you said that um, um, it's you know it it won't using an organization like Help Hope Live it won't affect or impact a family's you know um, income um, Medicare Medicaid um, why is that so important you know I, I don't think a lot of families think about that um, no I don't think so either and it's something that we've been having that conversation more and more as the years go on just because. Every state is different, so every Medicaid program is different, but for the most part, we do know that most Medicaid programs have a, a, an income cap. A lot mm -hmm. of them are around $2,000. They say you can only have X amount of funds in your bank account at any given time, and if you go above that income cap, you're at risk of losing your benefits, which I, mm -hmm. like you said, I don't know that people are fully understand, let alone aren't fully made aware of, I don't think. And right. so we manage all of the funds, their help up with assets so that they do not affect your Medicaid. They safeguard your Medicaid. We've had clients come to us after losing their benefits because they went to another fundraising platform that was hooked to their bank account. And all of a sudden we're seen as having $6,500, not even that much money. But $1 over that income cap raises that red flag and they're gonna come after you. So we are the safest and most responsible way to do that fundraising so that you can go to bed at night knowing that your Medicaid, your Medicare, all of that is well taken care of. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's so important. I mean, I just, you know, I, I have to say, I don't think it was something that I thought of. Um, you know, I, I haven't thought about fundraising just as an individual, as a family um, or anything, but um, I don't think it was until we had a conversation, you know, back in 2022. Um, I don't even think I thought about how um, families raising funds just on their own or through another platform could um, interfere with their their medical resources like or insurance coverage uh, medicare medicaid um, type coverage um scary. yeah that's so important it's really scary um, it it really is it really is and i think you know and i think too um i think i didn't think about it just hindsight being 2020 um i think a lot of families don't realize that that's income they're supposed to support uh, or report i don't think they think about that yeah. You know, if you do it independently like that, that is income that you're supposed to report. And I don't think families yeah. think that, you know, into it. Um, well, so as really, long as it's hooked to a bank account, they can yeah. have access to that bank account and know what what's going on in there. So if they see that 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 limit rise, you know, mm -hmm. whether you report it or not on your Medicaid, they have they have access to everything. So that's true. That's very, very true. Um Two things that you said that I want to make sure we highlight. You you mentioned community, and then um, and then just talking about um, using other fundraising platforms. So um, since we're talking that you know um, the value in having an organization like Help Hope Live, let's just stay there for a second. Sure. Why is it so? 
critical. Why is it um, why is it something families should be thinking about when it comes to choosing a platform? And 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 this is not to bash, you know, GoFundMe or other organizations or platforms out there, but but speaking to that attached to your bank account thing, um, yeah. why is that something families should be aware of when when making a decision to partner so with a platform? Our main advantages, first and foremost, definitely being that Medicaid piece. We are here to safeguard your benefits. Beyond that, we provide each of our clients a client services coordinator that is going to be there to work with them to figure out who their community is, help them plan their fundraisers, create flyers, help them write their stories, really be there for them on a daily basis for their lifetime. That, and then on top of that, we have a finance team that when you submit your bills to us, can help you read your bills, can help make sure we're only paying what you actually owe because we know the hospitals love to just send bill after bill after bill. And all of a sudden you think you owe $1,000 when you really don't, you get double billed all the time. So our finance team is here to really work with you on all of that. We have a social media team, you know, all of this is at your disposal, which those other platforms don't provide. On top of that, Help Uplive is a nonprofit. So all donations that are being made in your honor to Help Hope Live are tax deductible. So that's a real benefit to your donors. And sometimes a lot of donors, they're looking for a tax donation, especially at the end of the year or you know at the end of their fiscal year when they're trying to figure out where their funds should go. And on top of that, Sometimes employers have matching gift programs. So you can sometimes double or even triple the amount of their donation. Or corporations. Corporations cannot donate to an individual. They can donate to a nonprofit. So when you're working in your fundraising, you might be able to get a corporate gift in honor of your campaign because they are donating to Help Hope Live in your honor. So we are really giving you so many more opportunities to expound on your fundraising, to, to really be as successful as possible. Um, we help with press releases. We get your story out as much as we can. We work with you and your team. So we aren't here to just simply give you a, a, a website and say, go and do it. We're working with you every step of the way, which you just don't find anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's so important when you're trying to raise funds because you want to reach as many people as possible. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that community. Um, you know, I know that um, Help Hope Live can help, um, you know, create the website, help with language for a campaign, but um, the target audience is the family's direct community. You know, yes. maybe that's um, folks in the neighborhood, folks at school that you may have connected with um, um, in the community at church. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how that works. So the family helps target those folks and you help build um, the campaign to reach those folks, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have in that, in those first couple of conversations, when the client's onboarding with us, we'll ask them, you know, do you belong to a church? Do you have kids in school? 
Do you play sports? You know, try to figure out what their community is because that word is so vague. You know, you throw it out there. It could mean a thousand people. It could mean three people. Community is different to everyone. Um, You know, do you have friends or family that live in a different state than you do? Because just because, you know, physical isn't really enough, isn't really, you know, such a boundary anymore. We can have people fundraising for you in different states even or online. So in those opening conversations, that's what the coordinator will really try to pull that out. The individual might not even realize. And like you had said, school, church, that if you belong to a church, we see a lot of really supportive church communities, I do have to say. And even schools, we have some clients that do really, really wonderful um, uh, fundraisers within their schools and their PTAs. So those are built-in communities that right away, if you have that at your disposal, you can go running. So we are here to really help you identify what community means to you and then build upon that. What types of fundraisers are going to pique the interest of that community? What will actually make them come out, whether it's in person or online or make that donation or share your story? And that is where the coordinator really does. They can help create the flyers for that. They can do a press release. They can build materials like business cards that you just carry around with you. And when you're randomly talking to a person on the street, you can hand them your business card and they can scan a QR code right to your campaign page. So the coordinator is really there to to help with all of those materials. And it is a, a relationship, a mutual relationship with the client and their family. We do a lot of work, but we do expect, you know, some give back from them as well. So, and we are a lifelong process. We are here for you and with you for your entire lifetime. So we are not a one and done organization. We are helping you continuously fundraise for everything you might need for your entire life. So community might change, Uh, fundraising options might change and we're here to work with you as that goes. That's so good. Um, so let me ask you, what type of things um, can a person fundraise for? So when we say, you know, we help you fundraise for medical expenses and related costs, clearly, what is that related costs? It's just as vague as that community word we just talked about. Right? So related costs, truly, it's I always say it's almost easier for me to tell you what we don't help with. We can't cover vacations. We can't cover everyday groceries. We can't cover everyday clothing items or everyday meals. We are here to help you fundraise toward anything that is related to the individual's diagnosis. So everything, let's just say in the rare community, and I can maybe let me speak just from things I would fundraise maybe for my brother, a modified van, a modified uh, home modifications. We can't help you purchase a home, but we can help you fundraise toward modifications for the home. Um, You know, medications, medical travel. If you need to travel, whether it's locally or if you need to go to a different state and get a hotel room for a week or two for medical reasons, we can help you fundraise toward that. Um, Different types of equipment, assistive technology, um adaptive clothing wow. uh the list service animals the list is truly just continuously growing because so many new things are coming out each year too so i would say we don't have a finite list 
of things that we will cover. We do have our financial guidelines that we'll send our clients, but I will always say, ask your coordinator or our finance team before you just assume we wouldn't cover something. Because right. sometimes we might just ask you to go back to your doctor or your PT to get a note of necessity for something. Maybe we haven't heard of it before. But yeah. we are we are here to try to help you fundraise for anything related to your condition. Um, yeah. We're trying to help you live your life a little bit easier, whatever that looks like to you. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really great. Um, so, you know, when thinking about fundraising for specific items, you know, um, a lot of uh, a lot of families in the rare disease space, they do have that medical travel or um, like Elijah, you know, my child, for example, he's in a wheelchair. And so um, something like uh, an adaptive van or something, I'm I'm not mentally ready for a van, just myself. Like I'm just, I am not ready to be a van mom, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, but those are things, those are real things that. Or even have. just the fact that, you know, insurance might cover one wheelchair every two years. Yeah. Right. We can help you fundraise toward a second wheelchair. Right. I know my brother has an electric wheelchair, but we still use his manual chair. So mm -hmm. you might need multiple types of pieces of equipment. Exactly. So, you know, exactly. so many things like that. So you think insurance might cover a lot, especially when it comes to youngsters. We'll say sometimes I have conversations with parents and insurance does cover a lot for pediatrics. It's great. Mm -hmm. But there are those outliers, you know, a great thing that we can help you fundraise toward adaptive bicycles, let your kid mm -hmm. be a kid, if they have the ability to ride a bike, let us help you fundraise toward it. So those types of things that you might not think about, um, right. or, you know, insurance might just cover one thing, but not what you really need or the wheelchair, but not the wheelchair's lift device. Right, so, right. You know, yeah. there's always a catch. There's always a catch. So we we can help you fundraise toward all of those things that go a little bit outside the box for that insurance box. Right. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. So let me ask you this. What happens if a family sets a goal? They have an amazing fundraising campaign and they exceed the goal. What happens to the carryover, the leftover money? We applaud them. We say congratulations. Right. We aren't here to ever say that they need to set a goal and hit that goal or, excuse me, or go under or above. They can always raise their goal or, yeah. you know, it's up to them on their campaign page. You can make your campaign page private or public. You can put the thermometer on your campaign page or not. It's up to you. It's okay. all about the storytelling, really. Um, you know, you can come to us and start fundraising whether or not you have a specific item you need to fundraise for. We want you to come fundraise with us before you need that $70,000 van so that when you gotcha. do, the okay. are available. So, yes. you know, we've had clients that have been with us for 20 years. So they hit their camp, they hit their goal, they just exceed it. Or sometimes they can even reset their thermometer. Um, it's up to them because sometimes, Sometimes visually, if it looks like you've hit your goal, people might not think you still need funds to, to you know, continue, but we can help you reset your, that goal. Um, we understand that expenses aren't going away. So we're mm -hmm. here for your lifetime to help you fundraise. 
the funds will be held in a regionally restricted fund, depending on where you live, to help pay your bills for your lifetime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was just not to cut you off. I was just about yeah. to say I love that. Like I love that um, you can get started before you need it. Oh yeah. And I love. Like, I mean, that's just that's just some really good flexibility. Um, I love that you don't have to have um, a set goal. You know, you can just you can just be thinking. Um, yeah. You know, long term, big picture, yeah. and and go ahead and start those those campaigns now um, yeah I mean that's part of the conversation you can have with the coordinator too and we kind of want you to maybe try to set a budget or what do you think like and say you have a great fundraising campaign that's phenomenal what if you raise a hundred thousand dollars in a year but then you think how do you actually want to spend those funds and you don't you know the funds are there we don't say you have to spend them by x date their funds are there so it's really a matter of figuring out what works best um yeah we're we're really here to help you figure all of that out yeah that's so amazing and i think i think having a dedicated coordinator is huge um because um you know we we know that when you fundraise for anything there's like this you know this big picture this is where we're fundraising for, this is our goal, but then you have those nuances and those little gray areas. So I think it's really great to have someone um, on the Help Hope, the Help Hope Love team to help families know, um, you know, this is where we are, you know, this is what we're looking at, maybe we should try this, because you just, yeah. you don't get that. And, and I think that's just so critical. I think it's, you know, in addition to helping families be aware I think it helps with transparency and I think it helps with strategy. And I think a lot of times we go into fundraising with, with just an idea of a number, but we don't necessarily have strategy. So I think that's, I yeah. think that's just- That's a great, it's a great point. It really is. And I will say too, because I, I do know some, so many times in this community, we may feel isolated or that we're on an island. I will say yeah. you don't need to do it yourself. If, you know, you open your campaign, say I opened a campaign in honor of Sonny Mullen, I can then give permission to certain people in my life to submit fund requests on my behalf or speak about the funds that are raised on my behalf so that you create a little team around you so that you aren't alone, so that people can, maybe someone in your life wants to spearhead the fundraising and they can speak to the coordinator on your behalf. Um, so it's not just the individual. And obviously if it's a kiddo, it doesn't just have to be the parents because they have enough on their hands. If they have a trusted friend or family member that they want to appoint to be on their team, we can work with that person. We just need the, the parent or the spouse or the guardian to open the campaign. But once the campaign's open, create that team around you, because that's really important. And we really you know, we don't want anyone thinking that they're just doing it on their own either. On their own. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point that you bring up, you know, because we know um, on other platforms, whoever's name is attached and bank account is attached, that's who yeah. the money goes to. Yeah. And, you know, if, I mean, if, if if they don't release it to you, even though it was a fundraiser for you, um, if they don't relinquish those funds, then, I mean, how many times have we read articles and reports of that happening? 
too many. And I will say it does safeguard because, you know, we medically verify everyone we work with. So first and foremost, every, you know, that everyone has that condition, but then we also make sure that when we're paying fund requests, we have a form, you send in your bills that the person submitting that fund request has permission to submit that fund request because whether or not we're reimbursing or paying a a bill directly, we want to be sure we're doing right by our client, that we're Mm -hmm. not paying a bill that maybe, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend just is submitting once, you know, a caregiver. We're not, we're not here to, we're, we're trying to make sure no one's getting taken advantage of. Exactly. Exactly. That's a really good safeguard to verifying, you know, and I know when, when, um, when we first started our strike program, our financial assistance program, um, you know, we have had people try to request funds on behalf of someone. And in the process of verifying, um, we, we, we couldn't, we couldn't find the relationship, you know, Uh, and, um, and, and, and sadly it happens. And so I think, I think just having those safeguards in place are, um, I think those are really, really instrumental to a successful fundraiser, but really making sure those funds um, are secure and safe and being used for exactly what they're being fundraised exactly. for. And I think like, um, we pride ourselves on our transparency. We have been around now for 40 years. This is our 40th year in existence, um, helping the disability community. And we've had at least I think now 17 years in a row of um, Charity Navigator rating, the four star. So we pride ourselves on that transparency and we're always looking how to best serve our clients in their community. That's that's so amazing. So um, so uh, I, I'm so used to saying HHL when I talk yeah, about it. Uh, absolutely. Um, so uh, HHL is not specific to the rare disease community. It's, it's really yeah. for anybody with a medical complexity or special health need, um, a disability. It's, it's not closed to just the rare disease community. Um, no. So we, at this point, we assist anyone living with a medical condition that is experiencing a financial hardship. We were founded in Philadelphia by a heart transplant surgeon at Temple University. So our first 20 years of existence was solely assisting the the transplant community. And then in the early 2000s, we opened up, we had a a student here in Philadelphia get injured and we opened up to the spinal cord injury community, traumatic brain injury community. And then we opened up to catastrophic illness and that umbrella is just growing and growing. So that is everything from rare and undiagnosed disease to CP, MS, muscular dystrophy, stroke, Parkinson's, ALS, all of that. So, and we're opening up more and more to cancer, autism, COVID. So truly any medical condition that is experiencing a financial hardship, we are here to assist them all in their fundraising efforts. Because we never think, we, we just truly believe that a medical crisis should never turn into a financial crisis. Exactly. And we know that it, it can, I mean, yeah, easily absolutely. and quickly. Um, Very so quickly. let me, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me ask you. So we've talked about really the value of HHL compared to other fundraising platforms and really the benefit to, I mean, the benefit to the families um, yeah. above anything. I mean, um, keeping their resources secured, um, no interference there. Um 
we know other platforms, they have their fees and different things like that. Just full disclosure, HHL, they do uh, keep a small portion. Yep. We uh, do have an administration fee. Yeah, we have a 3% administration fee on all donations that come in in honor of our clients, plus a 2.65 credit card fee when you're donating online. And we do ask our donors to cover those fees when they're able. And a lot of our donors choose to cover those fees. Mm -hmm. There is no charge to our families, though, for everything that we've talked about up to this point of all of those services we offer. So all of the materials we create, all of the press releases and the support and the phone calls and the emails, that is all free to our families. We just, we just have that 3% fee. That is how I can be here today to talk to you. Yeah. It, you know, that pays us organizationally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is, which is a really small fee yeah. when you consider other platforms that are out there, um, you know, with those. I mean, we know those hidden fees and stuff pop up. Read that fine print. I find myself exactly. reading the fine print, even when my high school reunion asked for donations and I'm reading <laughs> the fine print now. And I'm like, what platform are you using? Like, That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, I have to say, you know, we really wanted to make sure to highlight um, um, HHL and, um, and as an organization, the EWE Foundation, we were so excited to um, go into partnership with HHL. Um, and, and basically what partnership means for us is making sure families know about HHL and making sure families are aware that um, if they are in a situation where fundraising is necessary, um, this is who we trust and who we think um, you know, families should reach out to if they if they find themselves in that spot. And so we wanted to to really highlight. Oh, Sarita, I really appreciate that. Yeah, we really wanted to highlight um, you guys so families just know that you're you're present. Um, so um, as we start our wrap up. Um, just any last words, we'd love to leave our listeners and, and viewers for those who watch the video. Uh, we love to leave them with just a word of encouragement and hope and hope just happens to be in the name. My of middle the name. Right? Honestly, it is. Oh, My middle well. name. <laughs> See? So. And, yeah. So I would love for you to just, you know, leave us with, leave us with a, a, a word of hope for our, our viewing audience. Absolutely. Just. Thank you, first and foremost, for having me here and for those words of kindness and the trust that you put in us. We, that is so valuable to us. And just let me say, listening, like I said, to the listeners, to the viewers, you are not alone. That is the most important thing. You are not alone. We are here to support you. We are here to make one piece in your life a little easier. I know that that seems daunting and overwhelming, but it can happen. So just make that first phone call. That's all I, that's all I encourage you to make that first phone call, go onto our website, hopehopelive.org and click the get started button or call our 800 number. We are here to help. No one should have to go through any of this by themselves. So we're here to help you make one thing in your life a little easier while we know that you already have more than enough to take care of. So like I said, Hope is quite literally my middle name. We are here to give a little bit of that to you as well. Awesome. That's so amazing. And I will make sure to put um, um, 
the links to Help Hope Live in the description um, on the video and the audio version of this episode. Um, so you are more than welcome to reach out. We do also have their information on our website, the ebfoundation.org. Um, if you go to our Stripe page, we have a direct link that will take you to Help Hope Live. Um, and so, um, I mean, and of course, again, if, if just reach out, like Sunny said, yeah, just, please. You know, this is, it's, it's one less thing, um, that you would have to worry about. If you are in a space where you need fundraising or if, you know, if your life right now can benefit from a fundraiser, um, please know that resources like Help Hope Live are out here. And that is the whole premise behind today's conversation. Absolutely. And know that if you reach out to us on social media, Help Hope Live Org on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, or if you reach out to our contact us form on our website, you will get answered by a real person. And so that is another thing that we really pride ourselves on. You will get answered by a real person and pointed in the right direction. So we are always here to make sure that your questions are getting answered. Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, Sunny, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Serena, um, absolutely. And, Anytime. Yeah. And for sharing Help Hope Live with our audience. Um, guys, please be on the lookout for more um, information about um, resources that are available, not just to the rare disease community, but to medical communities at large, resources like Help Hope Live. Um, until the next episode, be rare. Thank you, Sunny, for hanging out. Thank you. All right. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Being Rare podcast, where we talk about all things rare diseases. So to finish out March being Trisomy Awareness Month, we wanted to have another conversation with one of our partners about the work that they're doing for trisomy families. Today, I am joined by Dr. Deborah Bruns, who is uh, the overseer of the Tribes Project. So Dr. Bruns, welcome to the Being Rare podcast. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, it's so good to have you here. Um, we wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about the Tries Project and really why families in the Trisomy community should uh, get involved. Um, to get things started, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and um, about your connection to the rare disease community. All right. Thank you. Um, I am a professor um, here at Southern Illinois University um, in the special education program. My focus is uh, early childhood, so birth to five, um, as well as working with families, um, collaboration across uh, the teams that work with young children. But what brought me to uh, the tracking rare incident syndromes or tries project uh, began a long time ago when I was an educational therapist in New York City. Um, I worked at a place called New York Foundling Hospital, which was uh, kind of an institutional setting. The children lived there. They were uh, medically fragile was the term we were using at that time. And at one point in my five years there, that was in the early 90s, uh, so a while ago, um, I ended up with two uh, preschool-aged girls in my classroom that had trisomy 18. Never heard of it. <laughs> um, I just knew they looked similar, kind of the, the Down syndrome idea um, with the, the facial features and physical 
characteristics, some of the same medical concerns. Um, and there was also a, a four-year-old in another classroom. So there were literally three, uh, my, my trisomy triplets, as I call them, um, and worked uh, in different capacities with all three and just really piqued my interest because no one had ever talked about other trisomy conditions. Everyone knows about Down syndrome, but I really didn't know about any other ones. And uh, back then we didn't have the internet as we know it. Um, and the little bit of searching I could do back in 1992, 93, mm -hmm. uh, showed me autopsy photos. Yeah. That was it. And I, I just couldn't reconcile the photos with the kids in front of me yeah. um, that were vocalizing and smiling and had definite preferences for people and toys and things like that. And then fast forward, um, I went back to school for my doctorate in the late 90s. And um, the internet, again, led me to some online groups because at that point there weren't blogs and things yet. There were listservs that you could be on. And I fell into a listserv focused on trisomy 18 um, run by a mom in Australia and her son, um, and he's still around, he's in his late twenties, um, has mosaic trisomy 18. And this particular mom knew everything. Um, it was an amazing education for me. Um, so it was continued time on the listservs like that and uh, meeting some other kind of key folks that let me actually realize my big picture ideas of having yeah. this project um, to be able to collect data. And I think what's unique is it's longitudinal. So I don't just kind of hop in and hop out. Um, I ask parents after they complete a very involved uh, baseline survey to then come back every year mm -hmm. and update their child's information. So if there's new medications being used, if there's a new condition, um, if there's family changes, a new baby, yeah. just kind of being, and that's where the tracking part comes in that then at this point I have 10 years of data um, on yeah. some children, which go flies against the whole incompatible with life. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That is so amazing. So amazing. Um, you know, I think, I think you answered this um, in your, your response just there. Um, so families are encouraged to um, enter in a baseline and then just kind of follow up at, at minimum annually with mm -hmm. just new changes over the over the course of that year of what's happening with the child and, and everything. So, um, you know, navigating a journey like that is so difficult, you know, having a trisomy 18 child of my own. Um, you know, how do you, how do families know to come back? Do you guys like send reminders um, to kind of help families stay in front of that? I think the information that you're collecting is so valuable. Um, I know it's just really, really easy to forget to come back um, and do that. So how do, how do you keep families engaged with, with coming back to put more info in? Right. So I have been extremely fortunate and coming uh, back from those listserv days, um, have a research coordinator uh -oh. that takes care of that for me. So she kind of has her own um, tickler file of yeah. people who are coming up on their next year and she mm -hmm. will email them 
And if someone's forgotten their password, I mean, everything's done online. I guess I need to mention that. Um, all of the materials are online. Uh, when somebody begins the project, they have a login and password that is their own. It does not change um, while they're in with the project. So if someone forgets their information, we can go back and retrieve it for them. Um, and there's so a reminder comes in at approximately a year later and then there's another reminder like we we kind of keep on people we try not to be too nagging about it yeah, but yeah. I think once someone has done a, a few follow-ups they see the value yeah uh, so i've had people you know who do the follow-up like you could check on the calendar and you know they're going to do it versus people who send me notes and say, oh, things are a little crazy right now, but I'll get to it. And they may yeah. come back a month or two or three later. But mm -hmm. the research the research coordinator kind of keeps all of that moving. Um, and yeah. as people come in, she assigns their ID numbers and, and that kind of thing. I get more into downloading yeah. the data and going through it that way. Yeah, yeah. So what type of what type of information, um, you know, do you encourage families to enter? What what type of information are you collecting? Um, what can parents expect to to respond to when they sure. when they enter the project? Sure, we we collect a lot. Um, so I I do let um, folks know when I have opportunities to interact with people, like on Facebook or wherever mm -hmm. else that um, parents can come into the project at any point. So we don't only enroll a parent with a newborn. You could be, yeah. you, know, you could have a child who's five. So when parents work on the baseline survey, depending on the age of their child, it could be a huge undertaking um, because mm -hmm. we wanna go back and find out about their pregnancy experience. We wanna find out about labor and delivery. We wanna find out how long the child um, was on the neonatal unit and what types of procedures and supports they needed. Um, so that's kind of one section mm -hmm. at the beginning. And then there's a uh, family support section, because again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm a PhD. So my interests go a lot more into the family support piece of it and the developmental piece for the, the children. Um, so there's a family support piece that literally goes through who's been by your side, um, who <laughs> has not. Uh, if, a, if a parent has gone back to work, because that's something that came up very clearly at the very beginning of the project of parents that wanted to go back to work, but couldn't, yeah. uh, whether their child's needs, insurance issues, like things that I really didn't think about going yeah. into this, um, what is care like in the home? And, you know, and you know, this, um, yeah. what are daily cares? Like, what, what are you doing? four times a day with G-tube feeds and meds and mm -hmm. getting your older kids off to school and, and, and trying to capture um, some of that, how friends have responded, coworkers, um, family yeah. changes. I mean, it's very real. If mm -hmm. there's a divorce, mm -hmm. if, if, if I know, I know several parents in the project who've been single parents the whole way through and have had um, their mother has been a, a, big help or a close friend who has a child with a disability has been a big help. So we, we try to capture that. And then the, the third part, largest part of the baseline is all medical. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was a learning experience for me, because again, that's not quite my background, 
but the facility where I met my trisomy triplets was medical. So I did learn a great deal about cardiac defects, respiratory issues. Um, but the survey drills down to vision hearing, um, because we know like for the children with trisomy 13, lots of eye problems, um, Mm. lots and lots of eye problems, more incidents of cleft, cleft lip, cleft palate. Um, so I, I try to kind of look at every body system and Mm -hmm. collect information. So if it's gastrointestinal, neurological, um, and be able to collect information of issues the child was born with and, or were they resolved or is it an issue that's come up and then, um, information about surgeries. And I think a piece from my perspective, isn't just where it was done and was it successful, but also asking how many people they had to talk to until someone approved it, (laughs) because we know sometimes the family will cross state lines or will fly halfway across the country, um, to get a surgery because their home hospital denies it. Yeah. Um, and then there's, uh, developmental information that's also collected. Um, so pieces of all of that then come into the annual update. So the annual updates are pretty short and sweet. Um, it's doing that first baseline that takes a while. Yeah. And it sounds like you're capturing the full um, dynamic mm-hmm. and and let's just be honest, burden of, of of diagnosis. You know, I think, you know, I think we um, the way that you just just laid that all out right here is very, very clear um, that there are a lot of moving parts when navigating a journey like this. And so to be able to capture as much as you can only helps us better understand more of the diagnosis and and how it impacts families um, just across the board. So um, really, really great, really, really great info. Um, I did wanna also ask, so the information that you collect, how do you use that data? that families put into the into the system. How are you using it to um, change the narrative or educate? Um, what do you What do you do with it? We have done um, the project. We officially started in two thousand seven. Um, so I have definitely learned over the years different ways to raise awareness and and which doors to knock on. But I think at the end of the day, one of the things I'm most proud of is, and this is going on almost 10 years ago at this point, which is a little crazy, um, is we, uh, I had some undergraduate and graduate students helping me along the way um, through the university, different programs and such. And one thing we kind of stumbled on was we did some case studies. So if people go on to our website, they're, they're a little bit old now, um, but we did uh, a child a month for a year. And I forget, honestly, which year it was like around 2012, 2013, I think. Um, and we highlighted a child who we had baseline and then upwards of two, three, four years of additional data for and captured just the way I explained it. So there would be a paragraph about the pregnancy and labor and delivery. There'd be a paragraph about cardiac issues and how they were resolved. There would be a paragraph about feeding. There would be an on and on through it. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've always felt that was important was highlighting 
not just the the children, but having photos and making yeah. the kids real, yeah. not just a case, not just, mm-hmm. you know, sample number one. Mm-hmm. So on these case studies, we would have a newborn photo and then a current photo of the child. Mm-hmm. And then from that dozen, we then a few years later did an update on, I believe three or four. And what the kind of the satisfaction that I get is parents literally do go on our website and download those case studies. And when they're going to meet a new specialist who maybe has never seen a child with trisomy 18 or 13, um, Mm -hmm. because we follow a number of different groups, they can literally hand that to the doctor and say, I know this might not be my child. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I never want to have way too high expectations or anything like that. It, every child's an individual, but just so they can hand that to their child's new neurologist or new cardiac person. And I've had my worlds collide with yeah. like a doctor reaching out to me for information and saying, oh, this parent just came to me and talked about your project and handed me this. And I was like, yeah, that's one of my case studies. Um, boy, it's been an interesting journey because I have people reach out to me, whether they're doctors, um, social workers, because the child's in their school and they're trying to navigate um, services. So I think that's part of how some of the data goes out as well. When I get questions, whether it's from a doctor, from a parent on Facebook, and then I'll dive into the data for their specific question about reflux. Yeah. You know, and my kids on these meds and they don't seem to be working. Okay, I can go into the database, pull all the trisomy 18 kids out around the same age as your child, see how many have reflux and if they do what meds have, you know, shown to be effective. So I can kind of do it on that level as Mm -hmm. well. Um, The website also has uh, informational uh, modules on uh, trisomy 18 full. I always have to clarify Full mm-hmm. 18, full 13, and nine mosaic. Um, and that's meant to, again, go to medical folks, to families. It's presented in a way that's straightforward, not a lot of jargon, a lot of photos, um, but also highlighting data from the project and other materials you know, in the literature. So I've pulled in past research and then updated it. Um, I've also presented at conferences yeah. uh, in different places um, for different groups. So I've done nursing staff, like neonatal nurses, um, genetics folks. Uh, there was a conference I was in a number of years ago that had some medical doctors, physical therapists, occupational mm-hmm. therapists. It, it's mm-hmm. a, I forget the name of the organization, but it kind of covers that whole yeah. kind of therapeutic world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I often do posters there instead of like a full session, because I'm not sure who would show up, but mm-hmm. when you have a poster, a lot of people come through and then right. the photos draw people in where they'll be like, that child looks like they have trisomy 18. How mm-hmm. old? Oh, she's six. Yeah. You know? And it's still that, wait, they die at one by one. I'm like, not all of them. Right. <laughs> you know? Let me show you all these kids. Um, so I do that. And then also uh, publications. So I think at this point we have a probably close to a dozen um, tries project data that that's out there that's been packaged um, for different audiences. So nursing journals, 
medical genetics. Um, we did a, a piece that was uh, more on reflux, actually, from when a parent asked me that found its way to publication. Um, I had a parent ask some dental-related questions, and that um, data mining, as we call it, ended up in a specialized journal around dentistry for special populations that wow. I didn't even know existed. Um, a couple other more main, I guess, more mainstream kind of in my world, special education type journals um, for the family piece of it. Um, so I've kind of packaged some data as far as um, the issue with parents wanting to go back to work, but they can't go back to work and how that all plays out for daily care and and money to live on um, when you're down to one salary because you need that person working to get their insurance. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think, you know, lastly, and most important to me is, is personal contact um, mm -hmm. with, you know, some of these families I've known since 2007. Yeah. Uh, and maybe their child's not here anymore, but I'm still in contact with them, or they reach out to me because there's a new parent that they've come across in Boulder, Colorado, who, you know, who needs some information and they'll kind of send them back to me. So I've had face-to-face um, -face contact with people, you know, Zoom calls, emails, uh, and around the world too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just That's... phenomenal. And I, I yeah. never would have expected um, a, a person, like a family member, um, who has a niece with trisomy nine mosaicism in Italy who reached out to me and she's someone who works on movies and is kind of in that world yeah. um, and ending up, you know, meeting her with her coming out here to the U S um, and spending time with her and being in a documentary that she worked on um, in talking about the project and the children and the worth and value of them. That's so amazing. That is so, so amazing. And that was actually going to be my next question. Um, we have listeners all over the world. Is the Tribes Project something that's available across the world? Or is it just, is it just for um, patients in the U.S.? Uh, we have folks all over. Um, the, the issue is that the survey is in English. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've kind of had some fits and starts to try to translate. Um, but again, what do you translate into? <laughs> because there are so many, there are so many options. Um, mm -hmm. But I've had um, parents from other places that may not be fluent in English, but are able to complete the survey. Um, mm -hmm. I can think of a dad in Germany. Um, his daughter has been involved in the project for a number of years. And, and once in a while, when I look at the data, I'll see there's another language, um, cause there's some items where you, you type in mm -hmm. your answer. Mm -hmm. So I can use a, a Google translate or similar, um, to try to figure out, you know, what they're saying. Uh, but at this point, most of the folks involved, um, it's definitely the UK, US, Canada. Um, there's folks out in the Scandinavian countries that typically mm -hmm. speak English as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I do have people out in the Arab nations. I have a few mm -hmm. here and there, um, yeah. different places in Africa. Um, it, it, it places just you know the Philippines like yeah. I, I track all of that so I get right. to see 
where everybody is, but all the materials are in English. So I just ask people to do their best. Many of the questions are yes, no questions mm -hmm. um, or kind of checking a box. So how long was your child on the neonatal unit? Less than seven days, one to two weeks. Yeah. Know, yeah. Which is great. I mean, I think, I think that it's great that it's available. Um, to anyone, wherever they are, um, um, but just acknowledging that it is in English. Um, but I, I think it's I think it's amazing that anyone can participate, um, um, and and I think it makes sense to try to best identify how to translate before attempting to translate into every single language. Because how like how would you know? what direction to go, right? Like, um, but well, I, it, I think- it's, it's even the the issue with, you know, if you translate it into Spanish, right. what Spanish is it? Is it right. the Spanish that people in Spain speak or the Spanish that people in Santo Domingo speak? Like there's right. a whole bunch of, of issues of local context mm -hmm. kinds of things. And and I, I did have very preliminary discussions with someone here on campus who's a linguist and then a former student who was actually from Santo Domingo. And she mm -hmm. had some background, you know, helping with the project. And I said, okay, so what would it take to try to translate all of this? And she was the one who said, do you want me to translate it as someone from Santo Domingo? Or do you want someone who has maybe more formal Spanish and and I hadn't thought about that because even right. in English you're in a different place than I am right right so I'm in Illinois in southern Illinois but Illinois and you're in Alabama mm -hmm. so there are right. words that don't necessarily cross over and trying to think about how to do that in other languages for medical terms and even mm -hmm. therapy terms and, mm -hmm. and education related terms um I find out very quickly, like we collect demographic information. So you want to have an idea of people's income. Yeah. Well, how do you do that when people are from everywhere? So right. I just ended up using low, medium, high mm -hmm. because I couldn't quantify it. Because mm -hmm. if I say medium in the US, what does that mean in the Philippines? Right. So it, yeah. it was an interesting process to just yeah. try to make certain things generic or even, you know, education level. You can't just yeah. always say high school or college. You have to kind of go by how many years you went to school and checking mm -hmm. a box. Mm -hmm. so, wow, that's, and that's a that's a perspective that, <laughs> that like you said, you just, you don't think about it until you think about it, until you're in a space to where you need to. And I think trying to capture the level of data that you're, that you're collecting, um, I think it is important to have, because I'd never thought about education like that, like the number of years versus, you know, some college, uh, some grad school, like you see on most demographic questions on forms. Um, so that's really, really good perspective. Um, I did want to ask real quickly before we start wrapping up is, um, we talked about the case studies and the different ones that you did. Um, you know, why are case studies important? It's especially for diagnoses like trisomy 13, 18, 9, you know, why should, why should families care about case studies? Well, I think from my perspective, um, and I'm not trying to be negative, um, mm -hmm. the medical folks, because yeah. 
they they don't see the whole child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the difference for me to come at it from more of a special education child development angle. Um, you know, thinking about the girls I worked with, I I didn't kind of pick them apart to say fine motor skills, gross motor skills necessarily. I saw them as a whole and then thought about how do I engage them? How do I motivate them? Mm. Um, so in doing the case studies, I felt like it was pulling all the pieces together because if a, if a child has a cardiac issue, well, of course it's going to impact feeding. It's going mm. to impact so many other things and, and looking at, um, the developmental part also was really important to me to show what they could do. So yeah, they had this laundry list of all these medical concerns, but they can sit up unsupported. They recognize family members. Um, they can assist to transfer into a wheelchair, like those kind of things I wanted to highlight instead of they have an ASD, and they have a VSD and they, they have a trach. Like I, I always want to go into the strengths and not so much the deficits and the needs. So I thought if I had a case study that had a little bit of everything, and then to be able to do the updates to say, oh, this is now resolved. So there was one child who, well, actually now two who were of my original 12, who had trachs at the time when we did the first go through and by the update, they didn't have their trachs anymore. Wow. And that was a huge deal. One was a bit different than the other and just kind of documenting like what happened that brought that about. And not to say the kids were, were a hundred percent okay for respiratory. They still have their, their treat, their NEB treatments and they have oxygen at home if needed. Um, but to just be able to highlight and then saying, okay, now that the trach's not there, one of the two can eat a little more orally mm-hmm. and just to kind of show that holistic piece, because I know being immersed in the literature on this, it's always, you know, an article on outcomes of cardiac surgery, and then they don't talk about anything else and mm-hmm. an article on, um, I don't know, something to do with uh, addressing scoliosis. Do you use rods? Do you use whatever? But it doesn't talk about the rest of the child. It just talks about, and that's usually the medical perspective is I'm a cardiologist. I fix your heart. And then somebody else other things. Mm -hmm. But I think with my background as a PhD, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to see the whole child. And And I feel like the case studies just was a natural extension of that and, and being able to pull the data. And then I worked really closely with parents as well mm-hmm. to make sure everything was accurate, um, getting information, you know, how many days a week did they go to school? Did they go full day? Did they go part-time mm-hmm. or they included with their peers? Oh, mm-hmm. this kid's doing, you know, therapeutic hippotherapy. I'm going to add that in, you know, right. and give that complete picture. How many siblings are there? Like, I just wanted, again, it's not, oh, this kid is rising 18. This mm-hmm. is Elijah. This is, you right. know, here, here are his siblings. Here's his typical day. Like, that's what I was really trying to put out there. And I think the case yeah. studies, I know they helped the parents who then took them to the doctors and, and the doctors said, oh, okay. I like, because the doctors make notes on a chart. They don't necessarily... Right. And they see the kid for 20 minutes. Right. This was 
you know, here's the whole package in three or four pages of mm-hmm. photos and what the child can do, the successful procedures they've had, and now what's what's next? What's next? Yeah, and it sounds like it sounds like the Trias Project is really capturing quality of life, mm-hmm. and I think I think that's what um, I think that's what a lot of families are looking for, you know, um, I think when we receive diagnoses like this, we, we, um, we, to some degree, know what we're, what we're facing because of the medical statistics and, and, and all of that, that we're given when we get the diagnosis. But I think you're right. I think, um, I think that quality of life piece is often, um dismissed or is not communicated um you're you're not giving the opportunity to even expect a good quality of life and so i love that you're capturing information to make it available for families and the healthcare space um so we can get that holistic view of of what a diagnosis like this can look like so um um, those were all the questions that I had for you. Um, I do want to thank you so much for, you know, just taking the time to hang out with us. Um, to all of our listeners, the Trice Project, there is a direct link to the Trice Project on the EWE Foundation website. Um, just go under the research tab. Uh, I will also make sure to put a direct link in the description of this episode. Um, Dr. Bruns, is there anything you would like to close us out with? Well, um, I think just when you were kind of making your points there, what what popped into my head is a a few of um, the long-term survivors, as they're called, um, that I've come to know. And just, you know, there's kind of the thought of kind of bubble wrapping the kids and, and, you know, and I understand kind of that that lockdown that you guys all do every winter, but there's also the, the... the young adults now too that I know and their families, you know, who go backstage at a Justin Bieber concert and who goes ziplining and just the, just being able to share that perspective of, of the child is not the diagnosis, an integral part of their family. They have value. They, um, they deserve like all the, what we would call the aggressive interventions um, because Mm -hmm. not that long ago, children with Down syndrome didn't have the opportunity to have cardiac surgery. And they had a lot of the same kinds of issues mm-hmm. where now someone with, you know, trisomy 18, 13, um, they do have the cardiac surgeries. They do get a trach. They do get a G-tube. When I was in the classroom, my kids did not get G-tubes. They would not do it. They had the nasogastric tubes, which was awful because they would pull them out all the time and right. send them to me. Um, but just I and I feel like I've maybe had a little bit of of a, a voice or an influence in some of that because I just always want to highlight the children and and see the photo. Like you can't just say it's a kid with trisomy 18, mm-hmm. you know, like you see Elijah and you smile. Like it's yeah. that's really what it is. It's moving the understanding of the medical, and I'm not diminishing it. I mean, you right, have to understand right. the respiratory. <clears throat> cardiac and and the seizures and you have to but but seeing that this you know particular child really enjoys 
being in the pool. And this mm -hmm. child really loves listening to country music. Like that's what I want to also highlight. I mean, I can, yeah. I can talk about the surgeries and all of that. And I have in the articles and things, but I also just want to highlight, this is a kid and mm -hmm. they have likes and dislikes and they act differently to different family members and caregivers and they're, and they're here. So let's celebrate them. Let's That's right. make the best life we can. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. And such a great way to close. I do want to also say really, really quickly, um, <clears throat> something Dr. Bruns just said, she was talking about um, the, a lot of the papers from the studies or the, the paperwork from the TRIES project. Um, I know one that was really helpful for us was the nutrition one. Um, when Elijah was transitioning from oral, uh, from bottle feeds to spoon feed. And so, uh, <clears throat> that information is also on the EWE Foundation website. Um, we hope that you found this content valuable. Please make sure to share it with your friends and your colleagues. We hope that you will consider our trisomy 18, trisomy 13, trisomy 9, our trisomy families. We hope that you will consider participating in the TRIS project. Um, until the next episode, be rare. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Burns. We appreciate you so much. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share it with others, post it on social media, or leave us a comment or review. Stay up to date on current conversations by subscribing to Being Rare wherever you listen to your podcast. Connect with us on social media at Sarita Edwards at the Being Rare podcast. Until the next episode, be rare.